Well, good afternoon. Uh, again, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name's Aaron, I'm one of our pastors and preachers here at the Trails, and uh, it's a great joy uh, to be preaching to you, especially this text, especially with this cheeky guy. Wasn't that phrase that he just said back to them just so wonderful? Uh, I just love it. Uh, now, as, as a church, uh, for the last couple of months, we've been kind of slowly making our way through the Gospel of John together, kind of bit by bit. And as we've done so, we've come back kind of time and time again to what is the main intention of this book? Why was it written? What is the aim of the author, this guy named John? And, and what effect did he want to have in our lives as we read through it and process through it as a church? Now, thankfully, we don't have to guess at what his intention is. We don't have to draw straws and, and wonder what it would be. Because John tells us that the main aim and purpose of writing this book, uh, and it's located actually at the very last chapter of the book. Now, I know it's backwards from how we do it normally. You have a prologue and the author says, hey, here's why I'm writing this book, and here's all the chapters, and then you kind of start. Well, John does it the flip opposite of that, so he tells you at the very end. So John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, if you don't have that marked uh, in your Bible, uh, I would suggest you do that if you're a marker in your Bible. I am. I love to write things. John chapter 20, 30 and 31, and this is what we read there. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Meaning that throughout this book, John carefully selected signs. In fact, in the book of John, there are only seven of them. Seven signs that John specifically chose for the express purpose that we would see these signs and learn two things about Jesus. Firstly, that he is the Christ meaning that he is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He fulfills all the plans, promises, and purposes of God the Father. And this word Christ also means uh, anointed one. Uh, th thus, one of the ways that Jesus fulfills all the purposes and plans and promises of God the Father is that he is the true and better king of Israel. So just as the king would be anointed, he too is anointed by the Father to usher in the very kingdom of God. Secondly, John writes about these signs that we might believe Jesus is the Son of God that he is the uncreated second person of the Trinity who's always existed alongside of God the Father and God the Spirit as one God that we know is three persons and just at the right time to accomplish all of the purposes and plans of God the Father, Jesus laid humanity alongside of his divinity, stepping into time as one person with two distinct natures. Thus, Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, and then throughout this book, what we do is we see Jesus has come to perfectly reveal to us who God the Father is, and he lives the perfect life of obedience to the Father that we are called to in God's word, but we cannot. His is a sinless life that never breaks any of the commands of God in his heart, mind, desires, longings, or externally with his hands or in what he said. And then he, the Christ, the Son of God who knew no sin, as the story unfolds, has come to be the true and better Lamb of God. Thus, as the spotless Passover Lamb, he lays down his life for the sacrifice for the sin of God's people. He stands condemned, taking upon himself the punishment, the wrath, the judgment of God the Father against our sin, not his, because he had none. Thus, at the very cross, Jesus pays our debt in full, drinking to the dregs the full wrath of God the Father, and then three days later, he is raised from the dead and vindicated before the entire world. And John writes this book specifically that you and I might see who Jesus is and what he has done so that we might believe upon him and be given life, eternal life. The joy of knowing God as our God our King who we bow down before and our Savior who has saved us from eternal death, which we deserve. And, and he has given us the gift of eternal life. That, that's why John wrote this book. So, so the aim, that's what that, that's that, that's that long sentence right there means. All of those things kind of encapsulated. That's the whole aim of this book is that you and I might be given eyes to see who Jesus is and why he has come. From birth and by nature, we see, as, as Chris mentioned in the beginning, we are just like this blind man. We are those who are born into this world blind to the things of God, blinded by Satan, as we see in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which is right after what Chris read for us, so that we might not see the light of the glory of Christ. Yet what we know is that Jesus is in the business of giving blind people sight. And so as we're kind of studying through the text today, that's my prayer. 
I, I'm praying that some of you who are here might be given eyes for the very first time to see who Jesus is and that your response might be just like this man's response. This man who he's given eyes to see who Jesus is and falls down before him and worships him as his Lord. That's my, that's my hope for some of you. Others of you, I, I'm praying that, that you might have boldness in sharing this gospel. We, we, can't, we can't read through this story without noticing the boldness of this guy, standing before these guys who are much better trained than him and who know the law much better than him, and he just takes them to school, you know what I mean? Just audaciously preaching, standing before these brothers that, that he would have been terrified before Christ gave him eyes to see. And I'm praying some of you that that might happen to you that we might not, like these parents, shrink back in fear, but rather, like the blind man, that we would have boldness to keep speaking of what we have seen and heard. And there might be many who hear our story of experiencing God's grace and that God might work through your life, that you might open and share with your words and other people might see how God has given you sight in and through Jesus and that they might be given sight as well. Not only that, but one of the things that, that I think is beautiful that we won't touch on a lot today, but one of the most beautiful things in this is seeing how every single suffering in our lives, both little but also really big, God has a beautiful and gracious intentions to work through every bit of them, to point others to the all-surpassing beauty of Jesus in the gospel. So that's, that's my end game. That's my aim of everything I want to tell you today. So if you remember nothing else, just remember what I just told you, and, and you'll be fine. That, that's, where, that's what everything today is, is working towards, and what I pray is that God might work in our midst. So let's pray and ask God's help as we dive in, because we know that we will only see, we'll only see if he gives us sight to see. So let's ask him to do that. So, Father, I, I pray that you, by your spirit, through grace, might work miracles in our hearts today. Because some of us are so familiar with your word. That sometimes we read it and we miss it. So I, I pray by your spirit's work that today you might give us eyes to see beauty of the glory of Jesus, that we might behold Christ as we look at this text, and that you might, as, as Chris said, chase away mists of ignorance that have blinded us, that we might worship you greater for who you are. For others of us, those who, those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus, I pray today would be a day where you, you would give them eyes to see, that you would save them, and set them free. God, in all of our lives, we, we know and pray these things, trusting and looking to you, because we know that, that apart from your grace, none of this will happen. So we look to you, and we trust you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we're examining the text today, we're going to do so by examining how it kind of works in three main parts. I don't know if you noticed that as... as uh, so Jim was reading through these three main parts. I mean, as Liz is reading through these three main parts today, there's, there's kind of three main sections that we see kind of unfold in this chapter. So the first thing, we're going to look at the miracle. The miracle is verses 1 to 12. And then after that, we're going to see the investigation of the Pharisees, verses 13 to 34. And then finally, uh, we are going to see how Jesus, the good shepherd, comes and how he comforts his sheep and corrects his opponents. So that is what we are going to see. So we're going to start right back at the very beginning of the chapter, and then we're going to see how this whole thing begins, all right? So track our thing back to verse 1. There we see Jesus and disciples are simply passing by the certain area, and as they do so, they run into a man who is blind from birth. And, and it's here with the disciples who probably have mixed thoughts regarding suffering and sin. They ask Jesus this question to get his view on the matter, kind of like how maybe you're hanging out with friends and some spiritual topics will just come up. Right, like you, you see something on social, and you're like, oh, hey, what is your thought on that? Right, or, or maybe you, you see something in the news, or maybe you're reading something in the Bible, and you, you're like, hey, I, I'm, I'm wondering, curious about this, X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. 
That's exactly what's happening here at the very beginning of this chapter. They see this man who's born blind, and they look at Jesus as they're walking, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? Now, on the surface, that seems like a wild question, right? Like, this kind of seems, if you have little kids, this might be the kind of question you run into in a store, right? Sometimes kids say the darndest things, right? You're out and about, and they just say things, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. They are young. They don't know. They don't know what they're saying. Right? This seems like a wild thing to just say in public. Even if someone believed this was true, like do you only have suffering in your life because of sin, to say it out loud in public in front of others is an audacious thing to just say, right? And, and, and yet here they are. They're like, Rabbi, I don't understand. What's going on here? And, and, and what's, what's wild is, is in here we, we also realize that that this actually is kind of how the majority world thinks about human suffering. I, I don't know how you think about human suffering, but, but this is actually how the majority world, most of the world, thinks about human suffering, why we walk through the things that we do. For example, in Hinduism, uh, one is taught uh, about karma, right? What you sow is what you reap. So, for example, if you're born in terrible poverty or, or maybe walking through suffering, they would explain that what you see happening is the natural outworking of karma. This individual has done something in their, in their life or in their past life that was so terrible that they need to walk through this suffering in their life. And suffering has a way of atoning for or purging out this evil from them so that in their next reincarnation, they will come back in a position with less suffering. Now, in these societies, therefore, helping someone as they're walking through suffering is seen pretty much as the worst possible thing you could ever do. Helping someone actually hinders them from walking through suffering so that in the next life, they won't be in as much suffering. And so you don't want to inhibit their cycle of rebirth, and so you just leave them be and don't help them. Now, while you're like, why are we talking about Hinduism? We don't live in India. Well, what we've seen is this kind of idea of karma really does permeate a lot of Canadian culture. I don't know if you've seen it, but I definitely have. Uh, a few times over this past year, uh, while I've been in line at the till or something like that, uh, I'll say something and we'll be talking with the person at the till, and, and they'll say something related to karma in some way. And, uh, and I don't know what you do. Has that ever happened to you? I don't know what you do in instances like this. Um, I sometimes get a little fun with it. I, I say, oh, man, I hope that karma isn't true because if it is, I'm sunk. Like, it's going to be terrible for me. And then they stand there real awkwardly for a minute, and they're like, oh, that's weird. Uh, they, just don't, they just don't know what to do. They just stare at me like I must be the worst possible person ever. But really, it's just because I know my Bible. I know that I am a really huge sinner, and I know how needy I am of Jesus' righteousness in my place. So if karma was real, I am totally sunk. Good news is, so are you. Uh, like, right, we're all totally, totally sunk. So this is kind of in, in a lot of our cultural language, but it's not just in our culture at large, but rather we see a lot of those beliefs beginning to seep into Christian churches in the way we talk about suffering. You ever notice that? So, so, so there are those who would say, for example, if you live a certain way, if you claim certain promises, if you have enough faith, if you put out enough good, if you put out enough faith, then you too will never work, walk through calamity or sickness or loss. You won't have miscarriages or children born with any kind of deformities or defects at all. If you just have enough faith, you speak it out into the world, these things will leave you alone. In that, what we're seeing is Christian karma. Someone believing if they put out enough good into the world, enough good works, enough good faith, enough effort, then God has promised that no suffering will befall them. Now, the flip side then is also true. If they don't exhibit enough faith or have enough good works, then they will walk through suffering. Thus, when someone does walk through suffering, it is their fault. It must be. Or it must be the fault of someone around them. Someone didn't have enough faith with them. Someone didn't believe with them for that miracle. Someone didn't have enough faith. And that's the reason that suffering has come into their life. Therefore, if someone does walk through cancer or dementia or Alzheimer's or financial loss or have children born with any kind of mental or physical abnormality like blindness, then it must be that this family didn't have enough faith. Or maybe that they have a secret sin that they need to repent from. 
Thus, there are two different tiers of Christianity. There are those who put out enough faith, good works, and positive attitudes, and they reap things from the Lord, and there are those who don't. Do you know of anyone like that? I know a big church down the street that teaches that. And what we see in our text today is that this is not a new phenomenon. It's very old. See, as humans, when we walk through suffering, don't we all begin pointing fingers at things? Don't look at me like you're holy. Don't you begin to point fingers at things when you start walking through suffering? Asking like, like why am I walking through this? Like it must be this fault or that fault. We're looking for cause and effect. <laughs> We're looking for something to blame for suffering. When these disciples see this man born blind, they probably heard from various rabbis and Pharisees that there are two different viewpoints, but really there are only two different options in mind. It's either the parents' fault, maybe they did something while pregnant to cause this baby to be born blind, like maybe there was a physical altercation where the dad got violent, maybe the mom drank too much, or there was some blasphemy against God or some other sin that the parents did that caused this son to be born blind, or on the other hand, was it the boy who somehow sinned in the womb against God and that's why he was born blind? Either way, these are the two options. This is why Jesus' response in verse 3 is so beautiful and so clear. You see what he says there? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Thus, what Jesus is saying here is that suffering has been permitted by God. And as we know, ordained from before the foundations of the world for this exact moment where Jesus would walk by and heal this guy. This is one of those works that John wants to highlight from John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Those works that point to who Jesus is and why he has come. For, for in this, we see something spectacular about the life and ministry of Jesus that we wouldn't see otherwise. He has come to give sight to the blind, to set captives free, as we learned last week. So this was the answer of Jesus. It wasn't because of anyone's sin, but rather it's according to God the Father's purposes and plans of bringing glory to himself in and through this blindness. Jesus then says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. A phrase that ties this chapter right back to John chapter 8, reminding us that during Jesus' earthly ministries that he he has works that the God the Father has planned for him to walk in, and as the light of the world, his light exposes the darkness of this world, leading to two different outcomes. His light either exposes to bring judgment that ultimately leads to salvation. So his is a light of judgment, revealing that we don't see things as clearly as we thought we did. And his light also reveals we're much more broken and sinful than we ever imagined, but it's also his light has come to give us eyes to see to redeem us and to save us, to purify us, to welcome us if we will but come to him. Both of which we're going to see at the very end of this chapter. But for now, we have this man born blind, we have the disciples asking these questions, and we have Jesus' response. And then verse 6, we see Jesus' mercy and grace towards this man. Notice with me there that it was Jesus who took the initiative in this miracle. You see that in verse 6? Jesus took the initiative in this miracle. Isn't that wild? The blind man doesn't ask Jesus to help him. The blind man shows no faith. The blind man doesn't even know anything about Jesus other than his name. He, he knows nothing. Jesus takes the initiative, walks up to this man, and begins healing him. And we know this is one of those situations planned for him before the foundations of the world. And that was what leads us to this strange miracle. I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus walks by, the disciples ask a question. Jesus answers it, knowing all along what he's going to do. Get to verse 6, and Jesus starts spitting on the ground and making mud. Yo, isn't that the weirdest thing you've read so far in the Bible? Can you, can you imagine this scene? I, when's the last time you tried to spit in the mud, in, just in the mud, and make enough spit come out for you to be able to make mud and put it on somebody's eyes? My guess is never. My guess is never. But you imagine, that's a lot of spit. I don't know how long it took Jesus to spit up that much spit, but you have to imagine he's there for a bit. Not only that, you got the blind, you got the blind guy doesn't know what's happening. We don't see that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to heal you. You're going to hear me spitting on the ground a little bit. I'm going to make some mud and put it on your eyes, okay? 
Homeboy has no idea what's going on. Jesus starts, answers this question, which is different than he's ever heard it answered before in his entire life, this poor blind guy. But then Jesus starts spitting on the ground, kneels down. He starts hearing him making mud. And, and then he puts it on the man's eyes, caking it on there, in effect, making him doubly blind. Like you can't see in the first place. Now you really can't see. You know what I mean? Like he's blind from birth. Now it's, it's impossible to see. And we're told that, that if if Jesus here, again, sorry, we're not told if he, if he does say this or not say this, but after taking the mud and anointing the man's eyes, Jesus does the strangest thing. He simply tells the man to go to this pool called Siloam and to wash himself. Now, again, we aren't even told here that the man would be able to see when he comes back. Isn't that wild? Isn't that crazy? Do you remember when Naaman came to Elisha looking for a healing? And Elisha said, go down and dip yourself seven times, and then you'll be healed. And he's like, I'm not going to do that, debase myself to go do that. And the servant says, hey, you better go do that. Like, if he's telling you something great to do, you would do it. Why not do something simple? So he goes, dipping himself seven times, knowing, hopefully, by faith, believing, this would actually heal him. This guy has no idea. This guy is just told, okay, now go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he... So he goes, he's told to just go and what to do, and and he doesn't, we don't know how long of a walk this is, but we do know that Jesus doesn't go with him either. That's what the blind man needs to do, is he needs to then try to find someone to help him get to the pool, to help him find it. And this whole situation is just super strange, isn't it? Like if you were there this day, this is a weird thing to see. Jesus answers this really, this question that everyone has in a way you didn't think he was going to, makes mud with his spit, puts it on this guy's eye, and then just tells him to go wash. Yet the weird thing about it is, as strange as the situation was, none of it deterred the man. I, I don't know if it was something in Jesus' voice or, or the kindness that Jesus had just a moment ago and not responding the way that every other single uh, rabbi or teacher had, had explained it before of what was wrong with him. But somehow, something about this whole situation made this man stand up and make his way to the Pool of Siloam, probably getting a friend to help him get there. And what we read, therefore, is that the man simply washed and came back seeing that's it. That's all we're told. But, but we can imagine the scene, right? Like, like the blind guy comes up to the pool. He maybe feels the water. He places some water in his eyes. He's washing away the mud. It's, and in that moment, his eyes would have just been flooded with light. Now, now I don't know if you've ever been in your room at 2 a.m., the lights go on. Immediately, you're like, oh, it's blinding. This guy has never seen light, ever. And in this moment, blinding light goes on. And we don't know how long it would have taken for his eyes to get adjusted to the brilliant light around him, but miracle of miracles, this man who has never been able to see anything in his entire life is in this moment able to see for the very first time what Jerusalem looks like, what people look like. He's maybe felt his mom and dad's faces when he was a kid, but now he knows what a face looks like. He, he knows what colors are. He, he sees kids maybe playing and running around. They aren't just sounds any longer, but he sees their faces. He, he can see everything. If you can, if you can, for a moment, just imagine how wild this situation would be. I, I can imagine homeboy was pretty excited, stunned, amazed, and overjoyed simultaneously. Like, I don't know if you have ever been praying that the Lord would do some kind of a miracle in your life and it happens. You're pumped, pumped. In the same way, let's say like you get engaged to someone and you just like run around, ladies, and you're like, I have a ring, right? Or, or like you find out you're having a baby and you're, just, you're telling random people in the store, I'm having a baby. And they're like, I don't care. Uh, you know what I mean? It's the same, this, this dude is pumped. He is excited. He would have been standing there just glorifying and praising God at this pool. He was blind. Now he sees. And I don't know how long it was until maybe a crowd would have begun forming around this guy, asking him, like, what happened to you? What's going on? And I would imagine he would be telling everyone everywhere around him what had happened. This was an astounding miracle. Something like this had never been heard of ever happening ever before. And probably still needing a friend to go with him because he doesn't know his way around because he hasn't seen anything before, all this is brand new, a friend probably takes him back to the spot where Jesus healed him. But they get there, and Jesus isn't there. You know, the craziest thing about this story is Jesus disappears until verse 35. Isn't that wild? 
Jesus just walks by, has a conversation, anoints him with oil, tells him, or anoints him with mud that he made with a spit, tells him to go, and then Jesus bounces. Jesus comes back at the very end at verse 35. The whole rest of this time, Jesus is nowhere to be seen. The whole focal point of this chapter is really just the astounding news that this man who was born blind has received sight by the powerful working of Jesus. In verses 8 to 12, we see the impact of this miracle in the crowds around him. And as he just gets closer to the area where he grew up, the area where he begged, the area where he lived, and he begins to see some of his neighbors for the first time. He recognizes their voices, and now he sees their faces and recognizes who they are. I imagine as well there's a lot of conversation going around. That's what we see in verses 8 to 12, which would have been normal. I mean, people would have had conversations about this guy right in front of him for his entire life, and it's now happening all over again. The questions before was, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Now the conversations are, I don't think this could be the exact same guy. Look at me at this next verse. So they're saying there, is not this the man that used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, it looks, looks like him, though. And the man just kept saying over and over again, I am the man. So it's biblical. You can say that, gentlemen. I'm the man. As long as you're talking about God's grace in your life. It really is him, he said. I, I had a miracle happen to me. Now I can see. And everyone here is just amazed, as we all would be. So they start questioning him even further. Right, you imagine, this, this is the kind of question you're asked. Okay, so if you were really, really born blind, and I've known you your whole life, if you weren't faking that whole time, I don't know why you'd be faking this, but let's just say you were. If you're faking this the whole time, how did this guy open your eyes? Something like this has never happened before. They wanted to hear the story, and so he answered them. He said, well, the man called Jesus. So right, this is all that he knows. He just knows his name is Jesus. He made mud, anointed my eyes, and it said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went, and I washed, and I received my sight. So then they look at him, and they say, well, where is he? Which is kind of a funny question to ask a guy who's blind. Because you don't know. I was blind. I don't know where he went. I don't know what he looks like. I have no idea where he is. It's kind of a funny question. But it shows just kind of this natural desire to meet the kind of man who could do miracles like this. I mean, I'd want to meet that guy. Wouldn't you? Like, I, that would be awesome. Like, where did this guy go? And the beautiful thing in all of this is that nobody's confused here. They know that the power that healed this man did not come from this pool of Siloam, which means sent. Rather, they knew that the power for this miracle came from the sent one himself, Jesus. And that's why they want to know where Jesus is. And the man just simply says, I don't know. Which then brings us to the second section of our text, verses 13 to 34. We see here the investigation into the miracle by the Pharisees, as this formerly blind man is brought by the people to their local religious leaders. Now, as we get into this section, I, I do want to say that there probably isn't any kind of ill will in this crowd in wanting to bring this man before the religious leaders. There's no way they could have known what's about to unfold in all these verses ahead. But rather, the miracle is just so astounding that they want to bring this man to their local religious leaders because the miracle cried out by a comment from them. They wanted to know, what do you think about this miracle? They, they want to know, well, what do you think about this crazy thing? This guy was blind, says he was blind. Now he can see, what do we do with that? How do we relate theologically with this? And this desire to know what, what these religious leaders thought is, is a pretty normal one for all of us. Right? Like, like if, if you might see something on social media, or you might see something unfold in the news, and you're like, hey, I wonder what Matt Woodmass thinks about that. Matt, what do you think about that? You know, I don't, I don't know. The number of times I might text Matt or call Matt, like, hey, what do, you, what do you think about that? That's a pretty normal thing, and this is what they're doing. This crazy thing has happened in their midst, and so they, they want to go to their pastors, their religious leaders, and say, hey, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? What, what do we make of this whole thing? Now, up until this point in the story, we can't imagine anyone would not be excited about this healing, right? Anyone who hears of this would be like, praise God. Like, that sounds awesome, right? Like, it's, it's astonishing. It's clearly the work of God. It's happening in their midst. There's no reason why the religious leaders would have a problem whatsoever. We might imagine that they would see this miraculous work and join with the confession of Nicodemus uh, back in John 3, right? We know that this man is from God, for no one can do the signs that he does unless God is with him. Right, so, so maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe that would be, we think it's going to be the response of the religious leaders until we get to verse 14. And in verse 14, we come across these familiar words. This is our dun, dun, dun kind of moment. It says, now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And upon reading that, all Christians' hearts sink just a little bit. They just sink a little bit because we remember we remember what happened when Jesus healed that invalid back in John chapter 5 and how that healing was on a Sabbath. And you would assume everyone would be super stoked. This guy was blind for 30, or this guy couldn't walk for 38 years. In a moment, Jesus spoke and, and muscles that had atrophied over years of unuse were 
perfectly fine again, and homeboy walks off in perfect health, not stumbling in uncertain health, but confident in certain health. And you would assume, praise God, that's a great miracle. But what do they do? Not that. They get upset. Why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Illegal. Why did you heal on the Sabbath? How dare you? And you're like, really? Come on, man. That's what we saw in, in John chapter 5. So when we read here that this happened on a Sabbath day, we realize that the whole brouhaha that's about to unfold is, is just going to be about that, about Jesus breaking the Sabbath by showing mercy and kindness to this man. Now, if, if you're newer and you don't know much about Sabbath laws, and maybe this is one of your first times with us, I'm going to give you a quick Coles Notes summary of why this is such a big deal and why this conversation unfolds. So, so in their history, God gave laws to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Right? They were in the land of slavery, and God, with his strong, mighty right arm, brought them out. And when he did so, he gave them laws. Now, these laws were commanded for all the Jews to follow them. And if they kept God's laws, God would bless them, protect them, and keep them safe in the promised land, the land he promised to give them. But if they broke his law, then he would discipline them. He would take them out of the promised land, and they would be slaves to foreign nations. And then he promised, eventually, he would bring them back to the land. And that's what we see actually unfold throughout the whole Old Testament. Because Israel broke the laws generation after generation, God, even though he is slow in anger and abounding in steadfast love, he brought discipline on his own people, and they were carried away into captivity, and eventually they were brought back into the promised land. They were carried away first the northern kingdom to Assyria, then the southern kingdom to Babylon, and the Persians, God whistled for the Cyrus to come, and he conquered them, and then set his people back into the promised land. And when they came back, it was of paramount importance to keep the laws so that this never happened ever again. And so when that happened, is because the Jewish leaders didn't want to break into the laws of God again, they wanted to stay in the land, they started adding additional laws that God never commanded, but they taught them on par with God's law. And in fact, what they did is they built fences around God's law, creating man-made religious rules and teaching them on equal par with God's commands. And then they built fences around that fence and fences around that fence fences around that fence until so much of what they taught that were the rules of God were actually the rules of men and not the rules of God at all. And one area where this was especially seen was in the Sabbath keeping. So God in the law gave a command to honor this day, not to work upon it, and to trust God that he would provide for his people. Thus that day, the Sabbath day, was both a test for them, would they trust God, and it's a gift to God for them, a day to be enjoyed as they rested from their labors. But what happened is that over time, the Jews started adding all kinds of mandates onto this day and commanded everyone to honor those fences just as they do God's law. Jesus, however, as we've seen throughout the study of the book of John, did not have time for these guys or their weird mandates. He was going to keep the law of God as the idyllic Jew, but he wasn't going to stand by and enforce their man-made laws on par with God's laws. In fact, isn't it interesting that that this entire dialogue happens because Jesus intentionally does this miracle on the Sabbath? Like, he could have done it the next day. Where was the blind guy going? Not far. Not far. He knew where he was. He could have come back the next day. He could have done it the day before. Why? Why do you do it on the Sabbath? To cause all of this conversation. He could have healed at any other time, but he followed the will of the Father and intentionally healed on a day when it would intentionally cause a whole lot of controversy in a way that would make the religious leaders just furious at him. Now, in this, though, Jesus wasn't simply kicking over anthills because he wanted to be contrarian. No, rather, this was God's gracious way of intervening into their weird and wrongful thoughts about God, that they might be liberated from their wrong-headed views of who God is, that they might actually see God for who he is in Christ. That, that those veils might just be dropped as they see the beauty of the light of the gospel of Jesus and what Jesus has done. They are currently blinded by their traditions, thinking that they are honoring God, but ra- really they're in blindness. Thus, it's God's great kindness that leads Jesus to do something that would just infuriate them so that he might show them grace. Now, we might wonder, which of the man-made laws did the Pharisees here think that Jesus broke in healing this man born blind? Well, there are potentially three of them. First, we know that healing was forbidden on the Sabbath, except for cases where life was in danger. This man's life wasn't in danger, clearly. So Jesus could have healed him on a different day. So strike number one. Secondly, among the many forbidden categories of work was kneading, or kind of like when you make dough and you knead it together. Well, that exact same Greek word for kneading is the same word used for when Jesus made the mud together. 
It's kneading. So strike two. And this one, the third one, is kind of up for a little bit of debate. There was a division among the authorities about whether or not anointing someone's eyes was legal on the Sabbath or not. And so if it was, strike out. And if not, the other two strikes are also an immediate strikeout. Uh, and, and that's the point. Jesus can't win here. So in response to breaking their mandates, they start kind of this formal investigation. However, Jesus is nowhere to be found like he was in John chapter 5. They can't question Jesus and ask, by what authority do you do these things? So they start questioning the man. This is the only one that they have, so they start questioning him. And, and all along in these verses, we see them internally struggling on what to do with this man because they can't deny that a miracle has happened, even though they try really hard. So they first start interrogating the man and asking him to go over the details with him because they want to know how he was healed. Again, probably they're not happy with the kneading, with the anointing, with the healing and all these stuff. But as the man begins to relay his story in verse 15, what we see in verse 16 is that as he does so, the leaders of the synagogue are at odds with one another. They start fighting in between themselves as leaders of the local synagogue. Things around the elder table get a little heated. One group, they're focusing on the Sabbath, and what they're convinced of is that Jesus is in violation of God's law. He's in violation of God's law. And so what they judge is that Jesus' miracle is not an adequate attestation of any kind of authority. After all, the law of Moses warns them, they would say, Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, against false prophets who foretell by dreams, insisting that even if they predict what comes true, nevertheless, they must be put to death if by their teaching they draw people away from the Lord. So the first group concludes, this man is not from God because he does not keep their oral traditions, their mandates, their man-made fences. The other group, however, looks at the miracle itself, no doubt. They find it hard to believe that Jesus is a sinner. Now, in, in this group, I can imagine Nicodemus fitting in real well. He, along with a couple of other Pharisees, know that Jesus is a teacher sent from God, for no one can do the works that he's doing unless God is with him, which is exactly what this blind man will, in a moment, argue before them. So this second group believes that the only power of God can heal a man like this, a man born blind. This must be the power of God at work in their very midst. So whatever Jesus has done needs to be weighed again. Maybe he isn't a sinner like these other guys think. And wildly enough, into this division, for some reason in verse 17, they ask the man what he thinks about all of this. Can you imagine that situation? You have all these religious leaders. They all went to seminary. They know their junk. They're sitting around arguing finer points of the law in between one another. And they look at this dude who's never been to school ever and can't read. And they say, what do you think? Isn't that weird? Like, why would you ask that guy what he thinks on weighty matters of the law when he can't read? That seems strange. That seems strange. It's a little wild. I mean, he has no expertise in the Bible. He's never gone to seminary or Bible college. He's never even taken a night class at Miller or been part of a learning cohort. This man was blind a couple of minutes ago. So they ask him, I guess, well, what do you think? I don't know. We have on a fight. I don't know. 50-50. What do you think? You'll be the decisive vote, I guess, on what we do here. And, and this man's response, I love it. He just looks at these guys, and he's like, I don't know. He must be a prophet, a man sent from God, doing the works of God and speaking with the authority of God. Like, I mean, this guy doesn't know much. Right, but like baseline, homeboy knows my eyes were blind. This guy healed me, now I see. So, must be a prophet. I, I don't know. That, that seems pretty clear. But it's here in this exact moment where the man's eyes are beginning to open wider. As Chris mentioned uh, at the very beginning from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and prayed and asked that those of us who can see, that our eyes would be opened even wider to see the beauty of the glory of Christ in our text today. This is what happens. Here, this guy's eyes are, spiritual eyes are beginning to open wider. He's beginning to see still more clearly. While at the same time, the eyes of the Pharisees are becoming covered. They are being blinded with a theological mist. So having heard the blind man's assertion that Jesus is a prophet and being divided themselves, we see that they have another line of defense that starts to arise. Somebody in the crowd probably wonders if this man was even born blind in the first place. Right? Beggars. Beggars are notorious liars and scoundrels. Maybe this man is lying about being born blind in the first place. And if they can discredit the man and assert that a real miracle didn't even happen, then they can tell their entire synagogue that they've been bamboozled. A real miracle didn't even happen. So in verses 18 to 23, they call in the guy's parents, wanting them to testify that this was in, indeed their son and that he was indeed born blind. In their estimation, the parents would unquestionably be, be the ones who could say whether or not he was in fact born blind or not or became blind maybe somewhere throughout his life, or if he really wasn't even blind in the first place. I mean, they would be in, in 
just intimately involved with their son's health history. You know what I mean? They'd be the, the experts on the matter. Where, where is he at? And so they bring the parents and they question them. Now, I want to pause for a moment. Just think about the day that these parents had. I want you to think about the agonizing life of being mistreated and abused by people constantly thinking their son's blindness was because of their sin or some kind of sin that their son committed in the womb. How devastating that would have been. But now, miracle of miracles, they hear that somehow their son, who was born blind, and that they watched grow up into manhood and now force himself to be a beggar because he can't provide any other way for himself. They heard that, that he can now see. But they hear that from these guys wanting to just drag them into this court with all these angry guys yelling at one another. And so the first time that they see their son, which something that should have been this beautiful moment. You ever gotten to just have a beautiful moment of just celebrating God's grace with someone at a miracle that God has done in their life? which should have been this, this beautiful moment, one that they prayed for would happen for years. This moment just becomes tainted with these men trying to discredit the miracle as they're brought in for questioning. So the parents come in, and the Pharisees ask them if this is their son, if he was born blind, and if so, how does he now see? And the parents in response say, yeah, this is our son. He was born blind, but how he sees, I don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. So they say, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. She seems like a weird response by parents, but then in verse 22, John lets us know the reason why his parents said these things. It's because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Thus, whether the parents knew anything or not, they wouldn't say a word, because out of fear, they said nothing. So they bring back in the man for a second round of interrogations in verses 24 to 34. In this section, it appears that whatever division they previously had before, is he or isn't he a sinner, Apparently, that's all cleared up now because in verse 24, we see that they collectively agree that Jesus is a sinner. So they ask the man one more time to relay what happened. And this is this, this interesting phrase, give glory to God. Now, you might wonder, I'm pretty sure he is giving glory to God. Jesus is God. What, is this? what does this mean? Well, this phrase, give glory to God, is a phrase we don't see a whole lot in the Bible. We do see it in a place uh, like in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19. Back there, do you remember after the battle of Jericho? Jericho. Jericho, in the battle of Jericho. When the walls came, do you remember Achan? Achan is one of those guys who stole gold at that time and put it under his tent. And then they go to Ai, and what happens at Ai? Israel gets defeated by this tiny little town. And they're like, what happened? And the Lord points out that it's Achan's sin. And when Achan is brought before them and his sin has been found out by God, Joshua looks at him and says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan comes clean. And I think that's the same idea here. I think the Pharisees are questioning this man again, believing, believing him either to be lying or simply wanting him to join in their assessment of Jesus. They want him to say, Jesus is a sinner. Jesus broke the Sabbath. So if this man joins them, in their assessment, then everything can be cleared up. They can present kind of a united front back to the church. When they gather again, they can say, hey, it's okay. We all know, blind guy, even Jesus is a sinner. So everyone just be okay. Don't listen to Jesus. Leave Jesus alone. That's what makes verse 25 all the more stunning. He doesn't join them. Rather, he simply points at the miracle again, this astounding miracle, and humbly says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, Though I was blind, now I see. And, and this is a beautiful statement. In, in, in it, he, he claims he's not an expert theologian. He doesn't have the ability to declare who is and who isn't a sinner legally. But he can't deny the miracle of his sight. So in verse 26, the religious authorities, they try to go back over the entire case all over again to see if they miss anything. They want to get their facts straight. One more time. You ever see this in movies? They're trying to trip you up on something. That's kind of the, the kind of the scene here. They're trying to, to trip him up, see what he's, what he's saying. If maybe Jesus did something wrong he didn't say. Maybe he's going to say something they're going to kind of nail him and be able to declare, ha, you weren't really blind or Jesus didn't really heal you or something. So they said to the man, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, this is where if you're the blind man, you're getting a bit exasperated. You know what I mean? So you've, you've had a long day. This has been a great day but a very long one. You can see, praise God, 
You have to have all your neighbors around you say, I don't think you're really the blind guy. You know, no, I am. I, what do you mean I'm not the blind guy? Of course I'm the blind guy. I've, I've been with you my whole life. And they're like, I don't know. And they bring you before the religious leaders, and they're arguing about you. And then they traipse in your mom and dad. And they're like, is this really your boy? Yes. And then they bring you again. Tell us one more time, how did this happen? My homeboy's just getting exasperated. Like, I'm, I'd be done. Would you, wouldn't you be done? Be like, bro, what is happening? And this is where, this is where he gets exa- a little bit exasperated, a little bit cheeky. I like him. He, he says to them, I've told you already. Why do you want to hear it again? And we wonder at this point, if this, this man realizes that these religious guys are hearing what he's saying, but just simply refusing to hear it. And, and that they're trying to maybe trip him up in the details. But whatever the case, the man gets a little snarky. And then he looks at them and says, do you want to become his disciples too? Yo, that's a great way for you to get killed. They just said they're putting people out of the synagogue proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. And a homeboy looks at him and says, you want to become his disciples? Why are you asking me all this? What's wrong with you? So funny. Their response in verse 28 and 29 demonstrate they don't have that desire at all. They, they don't want to become Jesus' disciples. The reason that they give is not because they don't want to become disciples of Jesus, because they're already disciples. They're disciples of Moses. They're followers of the written in the oral law. They know that Moses spoke with God face to face, and that God gave him the law. We see that in Exodus 33, 11, Numbers 12, 8. But as far as they're concerned about Jesus, Jesus is a lawbreaker. So this formerly blind guy, he might want to be a disciple of this sinner. But as for them, they are disciples of Moses. However, as readers of the Gospel of John, the whole conversation reminds us of John 5 again, doesn't it? I mean, rinse and repeat. That last Sabbath disagreement, and Jesus is there, and his statement that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and and that he is a witness to who he is, and then he claims that God the Father is the other witness's identity and mission. Remember when Jesus gives these three streams that the Father gives for the attestation of who he is? The first one, John the Baptist the prophet who is sent before to make the way ready. The second one, the greater witness, is the works that he's doing, the evidence that he does. The third is, Jesus said, the very word of God, the scriptures. The scriptures are those who point to and anticipate Jesus' coming. In fact, John 5, Jesus then chastised the religious leaders because they have God's words. They search the scriptures because they think that in them they have eternal life. But it's those very scriptures that bear witness about Jesus, but they refuse to Jesus to come to him that they might have life. John chapter 5, verse 38 to 40. And, and to them who say they are disciples of Moses, Jesus says in John 5, on the day of judgment, it won't be Jesus who accuses them before the Father, but who? Moses. Cheeky. If they believed Moses, Jesus said, they would have believed in him because Moses wrote about him, John 5, 45 to 47. See, the Pharisees have it all wrong. See, they're accusing Jesus of breaking the laws that God gave to Moses, but Jesus isn't breaking any of the laws. Rather, Jesus is true and better prophet than Moses wrote about who would come. He doesn't break any of God's laws. Rather, he upholds them flawlessly. Thus, being a disciple of Moses and being a disciple of Jesus are not antithetical. Rather, if you're a disciple of Moses, then you are a disciple of Jesus. That's, that's what we see here. For Moses wrote about Jesus, that Jesus would come. But these men are too blinded to see that. So they end by saying that phrase, we don't know where he comes from. To which the former blind man in verse 30 says, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. I mean, this is astonishing to this man. Jesus does this incredible miracle, and they can't even determine where Jesus comes from. This is more astonishing because the messianic promises and hopes of Isaiah 42 are in view here. Isaiah, he writes about the Lord's chosen servant, the one who the Lord has anointed, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will come. And one of the markers of this coming reign and rule is that he is a light for the nations who will open the eyes of those who are blind. And never before in the history of mankind has someone who was born blind received sight, is what this guy says. So for these men to definitively say they know the scriptures, and to look at this blind guy from birth who received sight and say, I don't know where he comes from. This guy's like, this is astounding to me. So this man, while he hasn't seen much, he is clearly able to see through these men right in front of him. So the formerly blind man, he starts teaching the teachers of Israel. Isn't that wild? He opens, like, I'm going to start teaching you now. 
He doesn't know much, but what he knows needs to be taught. And so with great boldness, listen to this vocabulary. It shifts from the singular I know to the plural we know. Look what he says. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. See that, that we vocabulary? Calling these men to affirm what all Jews know to be true. No doubt, though the once blind man had never learned to read, he was discipled well by his parents. And praise God for that. He simply acknowledges that in prayer, God doesn't listen to sinners, but God does listen to the godly man who does his will. Again, he says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And in this moment, the formerly blind man testifies what he knows to be true about Jesus, and it's what they know to be true about Jesus, even if they don't want to see it. Jesus isn't a wicked sinner. And if he was not from God, he could do nothing. This miracle demonstrates that he has been sent by the Father and been given authority to perform these miracles. So he must not be a sinner. They have it all wrong. But hearing this formerly blind man correct them was more than they could bear. They become outraged in this moment. And in their blind rage, they revile him further and they get mean. They look at him and say, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us. They cast him out from the midst. Exactly what his parents were so afraid of happening to them happens here. Yet in their blind rage, isn't it interesting that these men make a definitive statement that they do believe that this formerly blind man was born in utter sin? That's illuminating because here at the end, they don't question that he was blind from birth any longer which means Jesus must have truly opened his eyes. But they're too blind to see the irony. They, they totally miss it. And in the end, they cast him out of the synagogue. He can't come back to their local synagogue. He is to be treated in his city as an outsider, an unbeliever, meaning his family can't have table communion with him. In his own city, he's an outcast. Which brings us to our last section where Jesus now enters back into the scene. I told you it was coming. Verse 35. And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful things that we read. We see here that Jesus heard that they cast him out, and the next thing we read is that he found him. He sought after him to find him. He heard of his suffering on account of the name of Jesus. He goes to find him. Isn't it fitting that this comes right before chapter 10, where we learn that Jesus is the good shepherd who comes for his sheep? Because here, he, the good shepherd, comes for his sheep. And here we see the tender care of Jesus. He comes to this man to do some good to him who had been treated so poorly. And having found him, Jesus, Jesus doesn't identify himself. All that he does is ask, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, this is a title that we've talked about often in the book of John. It's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, and it refers back to Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man, in that chapter, is brought before the Ancient of Days, God the Father himself, and is presented before him, and he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And it's said that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Thus what Jesus comes and asks this man is whether or not he believes in the Son of Man, that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. What Jesus is doing here is the same thing that he did in John 5. Do you remember he asked the guy, do you want to be healed? Exciting these affections of, I do want to be healed. Same thing here. He's exciting these affections and longings and desires within this man who's already had a whirlwind of a day to see if he recognizes in his healing the very effects of the coming kingdom of the Son of Man in this healing. Does he believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man understands what Jesus is asking. In response, he says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Basically, he says, I do. I, I do. Where, where is he? And Jesus responds with these beautiful words in 37. You have seen him. He was given eyes to see him. He's right in front of him. It's he who is speaking to you. What a beautiful phrase. Revealing no doubt that Jesus is the Son of Man. And on hearing that pronouncement, the man looks at Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. Then John records that the man worshipped Jesus. Now, this word in the book of John is only used in reference to worshipping God. 
Thus, what we see right here is this Jewish monotheistic man, upon hearing this pronouncement of Jesus and having received this astounding sign, becomes convinced that Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as such, he begins worshiping him. Now, again, the shocking thing here is that Jesus receives this worship, and John, the gospel writer, commends this worship of Jesus as the appropriate response from this man who was healed. This is another one of those proofs in the Bible that we look to, simply to recognize that Jesus viewed himself as God and that he received worship that only belongs rightly to God, and that Jesus taught others to worship him, who then, like John, taught other people to worship Jesus. So when people tell me, for example, that the Bible never really teaches us that Jesus is God and he's not worthy of worship, that rather Jesus comes and he's just a good model for us to imitate, this is one of the places that I take them, right here. And I say, can you explain that? I, what do you do with that? Or do you, what, what do you, this seems very clear to me. I'm not super bright, but I can read. Right? Like if Jesus wasn't God and didn't teach people that he was God, why would he not stop this man from worshiping him? And why didn't John, the gospel writer, condemn this action? I mean, Jesus could have said to the man, no, 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 don't worship me, only worship the Father. But he didn't. He receives this worship. Isn't that astounding? At other times of the Bible, this rejection of worship does happen. For example, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, John, the gospel writer of this, falls down to worship at the feet of an angel. But the angel looks at him and says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. That's what the angel says. So the angel stops the worship because he is not worthy of it. We also see what happens in the Bible when the apostles have people who try to start worshiping them after they heal a man in the name of Jesus. Then people try to start worshiping them in Acts chapter 14. And Paul looks at them and says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Yet here in John 9, Jesus receives the worship of this man. He doesn't condemn the man. He doesn't stop him. Why? Because this is the appropriate response. Jesus is worthy of this worship, for he is God in the flesh, God the Son, come to rescue and ransom his people from the domain of darkness and to bring them into his kingdom of eternal life. But then the question remains, well, then why was this blind man given sight to see who Jesus is while these religious leaders who know the law and have studied it their entire lives are still in spiritual darkness? Doesn't that seem strange? Wouldn't this have been a great moment, a great moment? For the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ to just come flooding into this room as this man is sharing and speaking. And everyone there just goes, oh yeah, we need to worship Jesus as well. That would be a beautiful moment. Why, why does he have spiritual eyes to see? Why do they not? That's what Jesus explains in verse 39. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. Those who see may become blind. Now, that's a perplexing statement, right? I mean, I mean, didn't Jesus in his first coming not come in judgment, but rather come to save? So, so what, why does he say here that he comes for judgment? Yes, he does come to save. But do you remember how God saved Israel through miraculous signs? And those signs at the same moment brought salvation for God's people, but also judgment on the nation of Israel simultaneously? So God has glory and salvation through judgment, saving his people through mighty miraculous works to bring judgment on others. This is the exact same thing we have here. God in his providence is using these same miraculous signs to be used by God in the lives of some to bring them to salvation while hardening others against him, those who think they see and who judge wrongly, who can stare bold-faced into the light of the glory of Christ, and call him a sinner that they do not need to love, trust, or obey. Now, apparently, Jesus made that statement in verse 39 in a very public place because there are some Pharisees nearby, and they hear Jesus say these things, and they look at Jesus, and they say, are we also blind then? And Jesus responds with profound irony. He says, if you were blind, if you, if you recognized that you were blind and you cried out for illumination, which you should, but you aren't, then Jesus said, then you would have no guilt. 
you wouldn't be guilty of this sin in particular of unbelief in Jesus. But Jesus says that now you claim to see, you who are blind and unable to see the law for what's it intended to do, your guilt remains. In essence, Jesus looks at these men and says, you refuse to admit that you are blind and need sight. You refuse to come to me that you may have life and you claim that you see so clearly and that's why you're rejecting me as the Messiah. So, yes, I'm talking about you. (laughs) This is a stinging rebuke. You are blind and as a result, your guilt remains. Thus, while Jesus' true disciples remain in his word and it leads them into the truth and the truth sets them free by it, as we saw in chapter 8, we also remember that those who refuse to bow before Jesus and worship him as their God, King, and Savior will die and then stand before God in judgment for this sin of unbelief. And all they can expect is to face God's judgment and wrath for it. So in this chapter, what we see then is how Jesus, the light of the world, has come to pierce into the darkness and give sight to the blind. People like you and I. Those who are born into this world with eyes that have been blinded by Satan and sin. So we're to read this story and firstly realize that you and I are exactly like this blind man. You and I, apart from Jesus coming and giving us eyes to see, apart from him giving us sight, we will never see the beauty and glory of Christ for who he truly is. Rather, all we will do is look at him through the word and by hearing from others their stories of grace and we'll say, sinner, he's not the Messiah. Unless God works a miracle in our lives and gives us eyes to see and minds to comprehend and hearts that are soft. And if he doesn't do that, we have no hope. So so we like to think that we're so independent. And what we see in God's word is that we are not. Unless God gives you grace to see and opens your eyes, you'll never see. But the beauty is that Jesus does give us eyes. Twelve years ago, a friend of mine was working at Sobeys an expensive place to buy groceries. And he had a friend who invited him to come and to hear more about the gospel at our church. This guy did not like Christians. This guy wasn't really sure he wanted to come. And this guy heard John chapter 9 being preached. Unless God opens your eyes, you'll never see. So one of the first times he learned about the glory of the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And in that moment, in that small basement on a Saturday evening, God gave him eyes to see. And he repented of his sin, and he trusted and believed upon Jesus. And his life was drastically different. That is my hope for you. That as we preach and walk through God's word, that his word would do a miracle in your life. Friends, unless God opens your eyes and gives you eyes to see, you won't see him. And the beauty of the gospel is that he does. We can look to Christ in and through these scriptures. We can look at this sign and, and see the beauty of what Jesus has come to do. This is why he laid humanity alongside his divinity. This is why God stepped into time to come live the perfect life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, facing the wrath and judgment of the Father against our sin so that blind folks like us might be given eyes to see. So I was thinking as well about this. I was thinking about our lives as Christians. I think one of the most astounding things in the life of this guy is, is how he is given by God's grace the boldness to stand 
amidst a lot of opposition against him and to stand firm on what he knows to be true about what God did in his life. He doesn't know a whole lot. He's not a scholar. He's not a preacher. He's never been to seminary. And yet Jesus opened his eyes to see who Jesus is. Physically, spiritually, so that he falls on his face before him and worships him and calls him his Lord. Friend, do you have eyes to see? In the years ahead, I, I don't have any I don't have any great hopes that things in Canada are going to get much better. In the face of increased opposition against what you believe as a Christian, friend, my, my hope and prayer for us as a church is, is that we might be those who simply profess what this man did. I, I don't know a lot, but I know one thing. I once was blind to my sin. I didn't know that I was destined for hell. I, I did not know that I had deserved God's wrath and his just judgment against my sin. But then I started reading God's word. I had friends talk to me about who Jesus was. I was given eyes to see I am a sinner. In grace to believe upon Jesus. And I wanted him to be my savior, God, and king and fall down at his feet and worship him. So I did. And it's that we might look at others and say, do you also want to become one of his disciples? Friends, may that be true of us. Let's pray.